The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, we talk with Doug Heinrich, VP of Product Development at Cool. Doug talks about the role of a designer, what he looks for in portfolios, and the differences between working for a private or a public company in the outdoor industry. I'll just, I'll turn the time over to, to Doug, Doug Heinrich, who's the VP of, of product at Cool um, in, in Salt Lake. Um, Doug's been involved in our program previously, um, and we always appreciate um, the support you give our program. We've actually had one of our graduates who's ended up um, at the company. Uh, yeah, two now. We have Shelby as well. That's right. So, uh, Shelby always- and Adam, and we're actually looking for a graphic artist, if you guys know anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe we can help with that. So, yeah, appreciate all that you do for the program. And again, appreciate you taking some time today to talk a little bit about the portfolios and just all the prep that goes into, you know, getting into the industry. So we'll, we'll turn the time over to you. Yeah, for sure. So I would say, you know, when each company handles recruitment a little bit differently, like, I mean, I worked at Black Diamond for 25 years and we evolved the process immensely when I was there. Um, where it became honestly, where everything just ran through the HR department. And then, so typically like, in a, and I'm not saying like cool and black diamond are similar sizes and it's worth comparing the two just because they're both Utah based companies. And, uh, you know, they both, they, they operate really differently and I'm really good friends with the people at Petzl too, which is, you know, Petzl's a similar size company and they operate really differently um, because they're French based. So um, like at Black Diamond, for example, like as a, a manager or director, or, you know, you're, you're looking to fill a role and at, at Black Diamond, you would put that request into human resources and then they would post the job and they have very uh, pretty tight job requirements that are written by the depart by the departments. And so like if we were looking for a developer or a designer, typically um, the way they work is they have like an entry level, like designer one, designer two, designer three, senior designer, you know, design director, and then VP of design, which would be the the um that's the way you would uh move through the organization and depending on your level of experience you'd be applying for either a designer one two three you know etc if that makes sense so um i think the portfolio really comes um for me if i'm looking for design specifically i we would just want to see like your creative process um 
not necessarily, I, I don't worry so much about the finished uh, product that you did like at school or whatever. What I'm more interested in is, is your problem solving and the way you, that you can portray that. Like, hey, this was the problem that we were trying to solve and this is how we approached it. And this is the solution we came to. Um, that's probably the most important thing. Like when I'm interviewing and our, or our team is interviewing candidates is just to understand how how you um, solve problems. Cause ultimately that's what you're trying to do. Um, you know, if we come to you and say, Hey, we need a jacket that this is our target consumer. Um, you know, the jacket needs to be in such price range. You know, we just want to know how you're going to approach it, what research you're going to do, um, what inspired you, et cetera. So any way that you can animate that <laughs> and everyone does it slightly differently, like, I, you know, backing up, I would say the resume is pretty basic. And for me, it's just the simpler, the better, just so I can hit the highlights, if that makes sense. Okay. You graduated from Utah State. Great. These are what your passions are outside of, um, you know, school, like whether it's music or sports or whatever it happens to be for me, just to try to get a, you know, a really quick snapshot to know you. And then honestly, I think, with most organizations, what I'm looking for is how you how we would see you fitting into the culture. <laughs> Does that make sense? And I can't overemphasize that enough. Like, like for example, have any of you guys uh, worked at Icon? Have you because I know that's they're a big employer at, and I worked for Icon for six years, so. Um, you know, Icon has a really different culture versus like a place like Black Diamond or Cool or Petzl. So I think for you, <laughs> you want to make sure you're you always have to realize that you're interviewing the company as well, because like you want to make sure that you're happy and fulfilled because then it won't feel as much like a job. But if you're in a culture where you're like, wow, like this is just too much. Um, and you can jump in here, Andrea, but, you know, every company has a different culture and you can't know that immediately, but that's what I would really be exploring on your side is like, hmm, do I like the way these guys operate? You know, like some companies are very like super organized, like, like Black Diamond, for example, since we were, we were an engineering based company and we made uh, PPE products, so personal pr protective equipment there were a lot of like process in place. And so to fit into that organization, you had to be very organized and kind of have your act together where a place like cool is a lot more uh, free form. Like Kevin's a lot more creative and just the way he runs the company and the owner of cool actually, um, you know, he managed, he's the, he's technically the head of design. Like I, I manage the design department on a day-to-day -day basis, but ultimately Kevin's the bottom line because he's the owner. And he really focuses on two um, pieces at Cool. He focuses on marketing and product. And then like the operational side, he doesn't really deal with it all. So um, anyway, I, I don't know if that helps. I can open it up to comments or Andrea, do you want to add anything there relative to, you know, trying to fit like the culture of a company? Yeah, definitely. And a couple of things I can speak to. Um, 
like I started my career at Columbia sportswear company right, in so Portland. And that was <laughs> a very, exactly a very different company. So organized, so put together, you know, we worked in cubicles, we worked through the day. Um, and then when I went to Prana, I was really surprised at how different it was. Like you could go surfing at lunchtime and, you know, you could come into a meeting with wet, salty hair and it was normal and natural. And yeah, it was such a difference. I was so surprised. And also like the sustainability aspect of Prana fit more, fit more with my values. Right. And I just really felt I, I meshed with that company in a way that was really fulfilling. So yeah, I really echo what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, they, uh, having been in the industry since I was, I don't know how old you guys are, but I, I was fortunate and I really started in the industry when I was like 15 years old, which seems ridiculous, but I was looking at this, uh, some music stuff cause I'm into music and, uh, you know, there's people that have written amazing albums when they're 13 years old. So, you know, it's like, there's a lot of stuff happening at an early age, but um, I think really what it comes down to is sense of purpose. Like that's the thing that will really keep you out of company and make it not feel like work. And you have to be paid. Like you guys all need jobs and you got to be paid. But if you align with the sense of purpose of the company, whatever that may be, like, for Andrea, like, you know, it could be sustainability, whatever the mission is like at black diamond for me, like, since I've been a lifelong climber, like we really wanted to make climbing safer, more accept, more accessible to people. Uh, we wanted to have diversity and, you know, so we, we were really focused on access to the, uh, environment protecting public lands. So, you know, people could enjoy them, whether you were on a you know, ATV or a climber, et cetera, snowmobile, it didn't really matter. But, um, you know, that sense of purpose for me, you know, made it easy to work there for 25 years. And of course, you know, it, it always ebbs and flows, I think, with jobs in general, like, and management will change and direction will change if they're, if you're there long enough. But also companies evolve, if that makes sense. So someone like Columbia, for example, where Andrea was, that's a pretty big organization. And so you're probably not going to see a ton of change of the way they've, they've done their structure. Sometimes you'll see companies go from like Nike does this a lot. And I've hired a lot of people from Nike, but they'll go um, in a vertical silos where they're saying, okay, we're going to build all of our running product with one team. So apparel, footwear, accessories, they're going to go vertical and they're going to have a director of running and then sometimes they'll go horizontal. <laughs> and so some companies flip back and forth between going horizontal and vertical. Do, does everyone get what that means? Like, so instead, when I mean uh, horizontal, they'll just say, oh, the footwear division is footwear and apparel is apparel. And we're not, I, I'm not saying that they don't talk to each other, but on some level, there's less communication, if that makes sense. That just happens naturally. Like, for example, like Black Diamond just switched to a vertical uh, siloed, so to business units. So they have a ski division. Uh, I don't know what they call it anymore, but sort of a mountain division that would be like headlamps and trekking poles and packs and tents, stuff like that. 
and then a climbing division. And then a, they're actually separating out apparel and footwear into vertical silos. So, you know, and they're pretty small um, to go to that level. So, you know, you have to think about that kind of stuff too. The other thing I would say when you're looking at companies is make sure like it depends on your personality, but I, I like working with teams and I like collaboration. And so I would really try to dig into that when you're interviewing, because like typically, you know, in an interview, like you'll, I would try to learn as much about the company and ask as many questions. And then obviously they want to ask you questions, but, you know, I would ask them about, you know, what the culture's like, what the, you know, what the vision is for the company, um, you know, do they collaborate in teams, just a lot of things like that, you know, and just figure out, you know, if, if you can glean that in a 60 minute interview about, you know, you should get a pretty good indication about what the culture is about, because honestly, in some companies, they won't even be able to answer it. <laughs> like, like, I hate to say it, like they may throw out some words, but they may not, they may say, Hey, we don't really have a specific vision. Um, you know, when I was at Patagonia, it was pretty clear what the division, what the vision was for the company. And, uh, you know, I thought Patagonia probably did the best job out of any place I've ever worked as far as creating a, a, uh, North star for the company, of saying, hey, this is what the company is about. These are our values. This is what, you know, is important to us as a brand. And, you know, for a place like Patagonia, you have to make money to give money away. <laughs> and so, like, to support environmental things, you have to be profitable. So, a lot of the drive for being, prop, you know, profitability is to be able to share that, right, and, and work on causes that are important to you besides above and beyond just you know, your paycheck or bonus or whatever it is. You talked yeah. about sense of purpose um, and that portfolio can kind of be that visual embodiment of what your sense of purpose is, right? And communicates your process. How do you, how did you kind of discover your sense of purpose? Uh, you know, this is something that we're kind of developing over time, but as a student, what do you recommend students do to try to formulate that, I guess, mission statement, design statement for themselves and figure out what that North Star is for them. Uh, any any insights there? Yeah, I mean, I think that typically evolves with people. Uh, but, you know, at your core, like for me, the sense, sense of purpose is I wanted to work. Well, <laughs> I'm dating myself, right? But the outdoor industry sort of existed when I started. Because like I said, I started when I was really young and the outdoor industry evolved a lot and actually became an industry. I vividly remember, you know, being in my early twenties, going to the first trade show at Reno, where there was a collective outdoor industry and the OIA was just starting to kind of come together. And the outdoor industry as a collective group started to look at bigger problems um, that they wanted, you know, some of it was protecting public land. Some of it was, um, sustainability. And, you know, for me, that was sort of the North Star because I was fortunate, like, I, I don't know if a, a lot of you, I assume, are Utah or Idaho natives, um, but, you know, being in the outdoors is so so accessible to us that, you know, we have a different point of view. I mean, you guys are all at Utah State, so you can be up Logan Canyon in 10 minutes, you know, and be in the outdoors. And, 
a lot of people don't have that, you know, if you live in an urban center. So for me, like, I think I recognized at a really early age that I wanted to be with a company that aligned, you know, with the, um, supporting the outdoors, if that makes sense. And I think you can do that in different ways, whether fishing, um, you know, even some of the motorsports, whatever it happens to be, it doesn't just have to always be human powered, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It, yeah. If students have questions, feel free to, to jump in here. Um, so you said that you don't really pay attention to like the, the final product necessarily on portfolios, but do you think that that's something that can like enhance or like make a difference for you in the end? Yeah. I mean, the reason I say that is because if it's a experimental thing, I'm more interested in how you solve the process because like, even at a place like cool, like there's, there's different ways to define success (laughs) and some of it, like the most basic way. And I think Andrea can probably jump in here on this one, but a lot of companies it's just pure revenue. So a product's successful if it generates profitability and revenue at other companies, um, you know, whether it's cool or, or black diamond, for example, like if, if we solved a problem that um, allowed, you know, backcountry skiers to be safer, like, believe me, BD hasn't made any money on their, uh their jet force airbags, I guarantee it. Cause we spent millions on developing that thing, but it was really important to us to make that product safer, right. To, to allow backcountry skiers to be safer. So it isn't always revenue driven and we're, we are always looking for people that can solve problems. And of course, you know, if it's a, <laughs> I don't know how to explain this. Like Adam, for example, who came through the program, like he, he came up with a pretty cool little wakeboarding. I don't know what you'd even call it. It was like a cover up that you put on after you're done wakeboarding. And I just like the way he solved the problem because he, he identified like, Hey, wakeboarders go out in early mornings and then, you know, they get out of the water and they're freezing. And this thing that he designed was, uh, super quick and simple to put on. And you know what I mean? Like I liked the finished product probably didn't have a heck of a lot of commercial value, (laughs) but uh, the way he solved the problem, I found, you know, really interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, you know, for you guys, as far as, uh, you know, I do think that it's kind of show, don't tell. Like, I think the less words, the more graphic um, presentation you can put together where you're just showing design concepts. Um, and again, just kind of going through the process like, hey, you know, this was uh, it, it typically is problem solution. I assume that that's a lot of the the te- teaching methodology up there, Andrea, I would assume is like, you're, you're typically always trying to come up with a solution to, I hate to call it a problem, but um, you know, like if avalanche airbags is a perfect example or uh, a beacon, for example, right? Like I know avalanches are in a lot of people's minds these days, just because avalanche, uh, you know, the uh, risk has been off the chart lately, but like we own peeps when I was there and, or Pac, you know, BD at one point owned Pac and, and they were always trying to make climate or ski helmets and, uh, 
cycling helmets safer. So that was their whole mission was to try to figure out the engineering technology to make uh, the sport safer, right? Like if you were to have a head trauma, you know, and that's, you know, pretty interesting. So I think that the more that you can show your problem solving ability and a creative solution is your, it, you will, it will really set you up, you know, and I think most companies jump in here, Andrea, are, are going to be looking for the same thing. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can speak a little bit to my, like where I'm coming from. It's not about making climbing gear safer. You know, it was about clothing. It was about right. being comfortable or looking a certain way, you know, yeah. like comfortable and relaxed, this awesome Southern California vibe. So um, what we were looking for there was people who like their way of solving problems in how do you make something look really soft and comfortable and go to and how does it feel amazing on the body what colors are you going to blend into this silhouette to just make it so people are drawn to the rack you know so it's a different type of problem that is solved but we really looked for people who took different silhouettes and ideas and um I don't know, trends and combine them in a way that was really unique and interesting and different than we'd seen from other people. So those were the type of problems we were looking to be solved and in that way. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really good point because like a cool, for example, we're always trying to build versatility into product and our, our, um, kind of MO is we try to take really technical products and we try to put them into like everyday silhouettes, if that makes sense. So we're kind of blurring the lines between, you know, someone that can go on a hike and our product, they could also wear it to work or they could go to the coffee shop, et cetera. And so we're always looking for, um, you know, fashion and technical and versatility blended. And so, that becomes a really another type of problem. So I'm glad you brought that up, Andrea. Like, I don't necessarily, you know, I was talking like in some ways more like engineering based problems, which a lot of ID people are solving and they're working hand in hand with an engineer. But I also think on the apparel side, what you have to do, and this is the hardest thing to do is a, it's really the product and marketing's teams, uh, ability to make it an emotional connection with the consumer. <laughs> and that's, that's a tough one to do. And like Andrea said, you have to exude that in the product that you, that you design. And so, yeah, I remember Pam, you know, the owner of Prana, I mean, she had a little bit of a bohemian kind of a hippie vibe, but you know, that thread went through Prana for quite some time. Right. So it kind of had that Southern California, a little bit, you know, psychedelic, you know, kind of vibe where you take a brand like Cool and Cool's more of a, you know, our our main, you know, tagline is born in the mountains because Cool's a Utah-based company. But Kevin's vision was always to try to take, you know, again, like uh, really technical performance fabrics and put them into what I would consider everyday versatile silhouettes which was a really unique point of view because like, if you look at the number of soft shell pants, we were able to sell at cool because of the versatility versus a brand like Mahmood or, or someone like that. That's more on the tech side. You know, we just, we have a lot bigger consumer base. So 
anyway, that's, I, I think that that problem solving is really the critical thing. And it always, you know, it sometimes, like you say, it's like a color story or how do you build a, a an emotional connection with the consumer that is aligned with the brand. And that's the hardest thing I think to figure out when you're looking for a job is, does your skill set align with the brand? <laughs> Does that make sense? Like that's a really hard thing for you to figure out because you kind of have to dig deep and go, hmm, I'm I'm a bit more of a problem solver here, you know, or I'm more on the engineering side of this equation. And this brand seems to be, you know, really into just pure fashion or or whatever it happens to be, right? Like it's sort of like the different, you know, some companies are much more utility based and other companies are really fashion based in the apparel industry. So I do think that may evolve for you personally, but you also have to decide where you sit on that spectrum. And usually it'll come through in your work, you know, just the way you approach things. Looks like we've got a question from Zach. Go ahead, Zach. Thanks, Chase. Uh, yeah, Doug. So my question is, um, so I'm in product line management emphasis here. And yep. uh, I know there's a few of us in the class that are. Um, how would you suggest kind of like going about showing our work as like a PLM? Because I know like as a designer, like you were saying, it's a problem solving ability. And like maybe in your portfolio, you show that process and have like a finished product. But like as a PLM, like I'm not entirely sure how to show that like both in my resume or in the interviewing process or in my portfolio, um, other than maybe like the products that I'm still designing, like maybe just like throwing my logo on there. Like, like how would you say, suggest like going into that with like a product line management, like mindset? Yeah. And I, you know, to be totally honest, I'm, I'm not a a school designer, so I'm more of a PLM. (laughs) So I've been more of a business unit leader and PLM. And I think to show PLM is just your uh, ability to show like organization and, um, you know, a thoughtful curated collection, right? (laughs) Like that's what's most important as a PLM because usually the production team and the finance people, you know, you're more tied to that side of the business. So they want to make sure that you don't have a lot of overlap, like in the way you have your collections done. So that's typically, if you come in from the outside as a PLM, that's usually the first thing that you're trying to do is reduce style counts, which sounds ridiculous, but that unless the company is really small, I, I, I'm sure even like Cotopaxi at this point, even though they're really small are trying to figure out how to reduce overlap and style counts. So I think it's your ability to show that each product has a sense of purpose and how it fits together as a, as a cohesive collection, if that makes sense. And that's, I, I think that you can do that graphically um, for sure. I think that you can, you can lay out really nice uh, line plans we've actually gone to uh, almost hundred percent visual line plans. Like we have a really cool system at cool where we can download a, a workbook. Now it, it it's based off a basically an Excel file and other files. And we have this script that can go in and grab everything and we can create a, a, a digital workbook in like five minutes now, which is, like we're way ahead of most people because every line review we do now has a visual representation and it's, it, you know, that's really the PLM that's doing that, not the designers, if that makes sense. 
the designers are responsible for creating those assets, but it's your job as a PLM to grab those assets and then put a cohesive presentation together. I don't know, Andrea, do you have anything to add there? Um, well, I think that's, I mean, that's spot on. Um, other things I would probably show are my ability to do market research to say, yeah. okay, these are the types of styles that need to exist in a line like this. These are the price buckets that yeah. styles need to exist in, in a line like this. These are the competition that um, my brand is going through. You could even choose a brand to, to represent and then go through that, that step, you know, those steps in the process to illustrate how you would do it. And you understand what a PLM would do. Um, that's another thing I would suggest like writing design briefs. Yeah. I was going to just say like, yeah. I think if you can come up with a really good template for a design brief, that will be super impressive to anyone that's uh, looking at you. Because ultimately, like cool is a little funky in the sense that our designers write the design briefs, but in most organizations, the PLM writes the design briefs. And I think it's really important to show the balance between marketing and product because you can make the greatest part product in the world. And if no one knows about it, how are you going to sell it? So there's always a, a, I always look at the PLM's role as the balance between, and a, a, in a perfect world, it would be 33% sales, 33% product and 33% marketing. <laughs> and that you have to be able to show that balance. Like, you know, you come up with a, a product or a product line and then how is that supported and how does that push through to the sales team, if that makes sense. And that's just a communication, you know, really the PLM ultimately becomes a little bit of a communication role, in my opinion. It's like, how are you communicating this internally and how is it, it communicated externally? And obviously you have partners in, in the organization, you, you know, typically you have a marketing team that can help with, external and internal communication, then you have to educate your reps to be able to say that same message about that product or product line, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like multifaceted in, in the sense that you have to you have to show organization level on a single product or a product line, and then you have to be able to step back and look at it from a bigger picture and say, how is this, how are we going to succeed with this product or product line in the marketplace? If that makes sense. And if you can graphically show that, that, you know, that that's a big win, but um, I, I, do you guys have um, product like, uh, like product brief templates that you work on or do they evolve or does each student kind of do their own or? Uh, yeah, we do. We have design briefs that they work from, sometimes from other students, and they would have to create their own and pass it to another student to design. Right. So kind of filling in that PLM design role and like working together as a team to do that. So that's kind of how we try to give them some real world experience in a way. Yeah, someone said to me one time, a design a designer in Vancouver said, if you can please one consumer 100%, you've succeeded <laughs> because that will translate out. And a lot of that becomes from the PLS, PLM's responsibility to define what that target is. Because anytime there's confusion in the product, it typically goes back to the brief. It isn't clear, like, who are you designing this for? You know, is it a 20-year-old uh 
you know, outdoor person or is it a 50 year old outdoor person? Because they're, they're going to have different points of view, different style, different color, you know, et cetera. So I think that target is really important from a PLM is, you know, and that comes down to the design brief and design briefs evolve. <laughs> so it's really rare that you start with a brief and it ends up in the same place, if that makes sense, but you have to be able to evolve it. And then that communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thing I, that just occurs to me, like in my in my career, the PLM also really owned the margins, like the margin targets and stuff yep. like that. Do you have any else you want to add of how maybe some of our students could illustrate something like that or your experience of uh, that? Yeah, I mean, typically it's just Excel, right? So, and that typically in a product brief and once you're in the company, um, you know, there's a the, the biggest role with a PLM is kind of looking at the category and I'll just use an example. Like if we're looking at base layer at cool or underwear or, you know, pants or whatever, the PLM really is looking at the whole category and saying, okay, this is our, our margin, you know, our rolled up margin for the whole category. And these are the pullers and draggers. And usually you have a line somewhere that shows, uh, product that's below the margin target and ones that are above. And you kind of have to systematically go through that and figure out when you redesign a new product, how are you going to raise that margin, right? Because most companies have kind of a baseline margin goal. And just for conversation, most apparel companies want to have an internal margin of 50%. You know, I'm sure Columbia was higher, but, um, you know, most smaller apparel companies would be targeting, you know, 50 to 55 percent internal margin. And then they're going to give the retailer a 50, you know, margin. And then they also have to give the retailer like discount points and all sorts of stuff. So it's, uh, you know, you have to be, um, you know, some of it's just being really proficient in Excel, honestly, just being able to, to crunch those numbers and then. You don't necessarily need to show it in Excel, but you want that as the back end for the whole thing. And then, you know, you want to show that like, you know, typically in a product brief, you would just say price target. I'm making this up. Let's just say it was a synthetic insulated jacket. We want the retail price to be between $199 and $229. So the cost, the FOB target is here. The landed cost is here, depending on the duties. And, you know, so a lot of it comes down to that side of it. And I don't know if you guys are working on that stuff or not. Yeah, we don't do as much with that part of it right now. Um, yeah, I wonder how we could put that in more, like just figuring out this, like the PLM side of things, like the specific part of the margin targets. I'll have to think of how I can incorporate that in more. Like, Yeah, I, I think it's worth you guys going through and saying, because this is really important, right, for the PLM. Like, and typically it depends on the organization, but I'm sure at like Columbia, for example, there was a whole sourcing department that decided where the product was going to be made based on capacity, duty rates, everything. But, you know, that's been a big issue over the last 12 months in the apparel industry or 18 is, you know, with a massive duty increase in China, everyone's been scrambling to figure out where to make product. And Vietnam has, you know, limited capacity plus the pricing's higher in Vietnam. So basically everyone's taking a margin hit 
um, in the apparel industry over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, just because of the duty rates increasing. So that's, you know, that's a big part of the PLM job, in my opinion, is, and I could flip you something that's really simple, but basically, you know, depending on what your product line is, you want to have a chart that shows like the duty rates, right, from each country that it's possible to build it in. And then you then you decide because that'll be really critical when you if you're looking at an eight dollar a yard fabric or a seven dollar yard fabric, you know, that duty rate can uh, affect that immensely. If that makes sense. So like a lot of people are sourcing polyester uh, or synthetics out of CAFTA because they're not paying duty on it so they can, you know, they can have more competitive price points and still make the margins versus paying 30 plus percent out of Asia, you know, on synthetics. So, you know, there, there's a there's a lot of back end stuff that you would need to know on the PLM side. I love talking about this too, because like our PLM track is relatively new. We've mostly been focused on design and development. So I love that you're talking about this and like what it, what it's really like. Yeah. The PLMs, just so you guys know, PLMs are really hard to find. Um, They're the hardest positions to fill in my opinion. And developers are second hardest to fill. (laughs) And then, you know, I'm not saying designers are a dime a dozen, but designers are just easier to find um, for whatever reason. There's just, I think there's more design schools out there and development, development and PLMs are very difficult to find. Like typically a lot of times companies will promote from within for PLM roles and they typically come out of sales, honestly. Um, just because it's, it's a fairly sales focused, uh, role, like for example, like when you go to a place like REI and you're doing a seasonal presentation, the PLM's the person, uh, presenting the product. And sometimes you'll have a designer there, but you know, typically the PLM knows way more about the product than a salesperson will ever know. And they should be able to talk and position the product and talk about the, you know, North Star for that product to its design for. And you can't really expect a salesperson to remember all that, especially if they've only had like two hours of education on it at a sales meeting, because the PLM lived with the product from the concept all the way through commercialization. So the PLM should know everything there is to know about that product and be able to present that cohesively to a buyer. And honestly, that's where you make or break a business is your ability to present to places like REI and the outdoor industry or, you know, any of the the big retailers. It's your ability to, uh, you know, on the PLM side to, you know, basically convince them that this product's amazing and they should buy it from you. (laughs) So there are a few of us that are working on um, trying to integrate uh, high quality renders and models into our final products. Um, do you see value in having like a, uh, interactive model that a customer can then, um, have interaction with this product before purchasing an, an internet environment rather than. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's the future, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, online business has shifted so fast. Um, it, you know, due to the pandemic, right. That, 
you know, online business. I mean, I've seen a bunch of varying reports, but a lot of people have, you know, at a minimum doubled their on a lot of brands have doubled their online business in the last, you know, they did it like in six months, which would have taken like six years, you know, and a lot of it, you know, it's all due to the pandemic, but I don't think it's going to change. I think consumer behavior has just changed and they're demanding better visual cues on sizing, what the product actually looks like. You know, the better you can educate a product digitally now that you're just going to win. And the companies that get there the fastest um, are going to are going to win in that marketplace. Like we just met with a company called Wear, it's W-A-I-R, and they do like a bunch of fit stuff. Like they have the largest fit database in the world. And their whole deal is trying to educate the consumer better to what product's going to fit them. And they've, they've made it pretty simple. They've tried a bunch of different experiments, but it's similar to what you're talking about, where you're basically putting in some data for the and then it spits out some results saying, you know, based on what you've told me, this is the best fit for this product for you. And they would take in account, like if, if, you know, if you're looking at cool, like we try to have all of our pants fit the same, but the reality is, is they don't all fit the same. <laughs> and we need to be able to show the consumer that, you know, if you buy this pan, it's a little bit more tapered and it runs a little bit small, even though, you know, the perfect world, you try to make a medium, a medium, but, you know, they're going to fit differently regardless, just because of the fabrications and whatnot. So the more that you can show that to the consumer of saying, Hey, you know, I like this pan. it's, uh, and, you know, you can, you can do it digitally or you can do it through just photographs and models. But I think the digital way, you know, is going to be the future. I think you're going to see a lot of evolution there over the next 12 to 24 months. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Um, do you have a LinkedIn account and how should we contact you if we wanted to at some later point? I try to stay like off all of that stuff. Cause I'm so busy with work. Like I'm kind of like someone, told me <laughs> that I'm like invisible, which is probably not a bad thing. It's mainly because I just dedicate all my time to work, but you can just email me at Doug at cool.com. <laughs> so it's about, that's super simple, but yeah, I don't like, I don't have any issue with that stuff. I just don't have time um, to deal with like social media or, or LinkedIn. Cause I typically go climbing when I have my time off and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, ride my bike. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Who else do we have here? I should pick on some people. What questions do you have, Paige? <laughs> You're in the middle of the screen, so I picked on you. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, what has been the most fulfilling part of your career? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I think it um, you know, like anyone, I think when I was in college, I was uh, kind of struggling to figure out what I wanted to do. And then once I once I sort of saw this uh, opportunity, I guess, to, to work in something that I really had a passion for, I, I think that that 
it, it kind of changed my life because, you know, like all of us, I had some pretty crappy jobs um, growing up. You know, I worked for a heavy equipment company and realized that I had zero interest in dealing with that population base. My dad had like an auto shop. And, you know, as a kid, I, I worked on cars and I didn't really like that. Um, so I think when I'd finally found, you know, the industry, I, I think that, and then I've just been really lucky, honestly, like in some ways, you know, it's been a lot of hard work, but I would say, I just felt lucky to have been a climber and had the opportunity to work at black diamond and cool and Patagonia, you know, just, I, I just feel really fortunate. So I think each company is different. And obviously I spent the most time at black diamond mainly because of my climbing passion, but I think, you know, working at Cools really fulfilling because uh, Andrea touched on it. It's a whole different challenge. Um, you know, apparel's really challenging in a different way. Like, um, I think it's really the emotional connection that you're trying to make with that consumer and, you know, kind of create a style for a, a, a customer and have them feel good about themselves and the way they look. And that's, that, that part's equally as fulfilling, I think, as making a hard goods piece that's like a safer helmet or something. So I, I guess, you know, for me, I just, it's been a, a good journey and I just feel lucky that I found the industry at, at such a young age and have been able to stay in it. How about you, Josh? What are your thoughts today? Um, maybe like what's your favorite part about working for cool? What do you enjoy about it? What are you excited about? You know, the one of the nice things about Cool is we really have two. There's not a lot of uh, like some people. Some organizations have layers of decision making, and at Cool, the owner is the owner and CEO are are there all the time, and so it's a lot easier to get decisions made um, and they'll make decisions on the spot. Like, should we keep this product or not? You know, you look at it and you make a call, right? So I think that part of it's, you know, really interesting. And I also think that cool has a ton of potential, um, you know, and I, the, the, one of the interesting things about cool is it's a hundred percent independent company. So it's owned by one person and Kevin has the luxury to do what he wants to. And I find that, you know, kind of nice, like having come out of a private company and then Black Diamond became a public company. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but Kevin can choose not to sell stuff to people that he doesn't like. <laughs> so that is a luxury um, and not to be pushed around by uh, retailers is a luxury. And believe me, they, you know, retailers will push you around and demand more stuff from you. And so, you know, it's not always a, a contentious relationship, but it can be. And, uh, you know, I just think that the nice thing about Cool is there's a lot of integrity in the brand. Like we never go on sale. We never break uh, map pricing. Our internet goes never goes on sale, and we have the tightest distribution of any brand in our space. So, all those things are, uh, you know, since Kevin owns the company outright, he can control that. Where it's a lot harder to control it when it 
when it, you have shareholders and there's a profitability aspect that's always looming over you, like every quarter, you know, in a public company, you have a, you know, you got to make the quarter, you got to make the month. And sometimes you make decisions that aren't necessarily the best decision for the long-term health of the brand, if that makes sense. So I, I think that's probably what is the most appealing thing for for me at Cool is the fact that it's fully independent and the owner's really involved in the company. Another quick thing I just want to say from a different perspective, like when I worked at Prana, we owned the bottoms market for a while and then you guys came around <laughs> and then all of a sudden we started seeing like on the NPD data, it's like, okay, Prana pants, Prana pants, stretch Zion. And then all of a sudden cool pants, cool pants. Yeah. And you guys just kept coming in. And I remember like the internal struggle we had it's like well they're independently owned they can choose what they do they can you know and it was so frustrating to us as a company with the the things we had to do and then i don't know the ability you all had to to take it in a very stylish direction a really interesting a very technical direction and yeah it was frustrating from our side to try and compete with a company like that Yeah, for sure. And we can do things, you know, if we decide we want to take market share, we can take a a short margin and that's harder to do, like you say, at at Columbia. And that's why we were cursing you at Prana. (laughs) We're like, uh, like, there's nothing we can do about that, you know, but you are. um, Yeah, you're very successful, too. I mean, it's a very successful company. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of soul with, with cool. I mean, just the fact that it's independent and, uh, you know, Kevin really stands up for his values, which he, you know, he definitely wants to protect the independence of the company. And, uh, he also is really, really good to his employees. Um, and you know, most companies are, but sometimes you, you know, in a, in a bigger organization, you can feel like, you know, I'm just replaceable. <laughs> like they'll just plug someone in tomorrow and replace me. And that's not the most gratifying, um, you know, way to feel when you're spending more time at work than you do with your loved ones, you know, like that's, that can be really frustrating when you just, and that's, I kind of circle back to that sort of North star thing, because you will end up spending a lot of time, energy, um, sometimes it bleeds into your personal life because you take work home with you and you got to make sure it's worth it and you're psyched to be there. Um, that said, everyone needs a job too. So I totally get that. And, uh, you know, when our kids, um, I have a, my stepson went through the U of U design program and he's actually a designer at Black Diamond, but you know, we intentionally made them work in restaurants and places. And when they were younger, because I was like, you got to decide where you don't want to (laughs) work. And the only way you can know that is if you go working in a restaurant or you work in a, you know, wherever a coffee shop, and those aren't bad jobs, but you've got to decide, you know, where you want to be. And the only way to know that is when you work in different places, you know, it's pretty rare. I mean, some people go down a career path, right. Where, Um, they become a doctor or something. And I think the problem with those careers is there's no turning back, (laughs) you know, after you've invested 
whatever 16 years of your life into a specialty you just can't reverse out of it at that point even if you don't like it where i think you guys have a lot of opportunity like it's a pretty broad world out there whether you want to design furniture or you know there's just a lot of different opportunities out there that you know, have the threat of design, you know, it is, it doesn't just have to be apparel, you know, it can segue into other things. How about you, Matt? We haven't heard from you. (laughs) While you're building a portfolio, what would be steps that you take to make sure you're putting in the right stuff and not putting in too much? How much should a page include? Do you want sketches? Do you want every single formatted thing or is it like this is the product and a few little things leading up to it sort of yeah i per i personally like seeing sketches um i like to see people's ability to draw especially if you're a designer like i think that's really important um you know and i know like at cool for example we really value people that can draw now you don't necessarily, it doesn't have to be, you know, some of it can be rendering too, right? Like we have people in the building, they're really good at rendering and they may not be able to draw that well, like by hand. So it really kind of depends, but I just think if you can make a cohesive, uh, you know, portfolio saying, Hey, this is the project. Um, these were some of the concepts I did. I narrowed it down to this and this is what it came out to. It's, it's a pretty, you know, as succinctly as you can make it to just show kind of how your process, how you went through, you know, some concepts and how you decided to, um, you know, get to that final um, draft. And typically like in an organization, like there's, there's people that come in that, you know, change the course of what you're doing. And that's probably the hardest thing I think for developers and designers, not so much for the PLMs, um, Zach, because they're usually ones forcing the designers to change because it's either too expensive or something. So they have to go back to the drawing board. But I think your ability to deal with change is really critical and not get tweaked about it. We had a girl that came in as a graphic artist and she was talented and she put some photographs together that weren't off on brand and for a presentation and and we reviewed it with our CEO and he didn't like him and she was really upset about it. And I'm like, don't be upset. (laughs) Like she ended up quitting. And I was like, because like, he's the CEO, whatever he says, like he's been here 20 something years. If he doesn't think it's on brand, you got to find a different photograph. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because like, don't, don't take it personally. It isn't an assault on your creative Um, vision. It's just that it's not on brand and you don't even know the brand yet. So you just have to listen and learn. So that's my biggest advice to all you guys is when you get into um, an organization, realize there's going to be people making decisions that you don't even necessarily agree with. And sometimes you don't even necessarily respect their decision, but it's just a, it's a process where there's different people having inputs for different reasons, if that makes sense. And you just have to be able to flow with it. You just have to say, okay, got it. Like, and learn, like, why don't you like this? Or why do you want it changed? You know? 
like at a place like cool, if it's a design, you know, the owner doesn't like it. So you just say, okay, <laughs> what do you, he doesn't feel like it's on brand. Right. And Patagonia was the same way. I don't think Yvonne and Melinda are as in, in, involved as they once were, but um, you know, Yvonne could come in and say, Hey, I don't like this. And guess what? That product got canceled, even though you may have just worked on it for six months, you know, and that can be super frustrating, but you just kind of have to roll with it. <clears throat> Cause the only way to control that is if you, you own the company yourself <laughs> and then you have a whole litany of other problems. Like you got to deal with the finance guys and you got to deal with, you know, banks and taxes and employees and benefits. And so there's a whole nother side of it as well. All right. Well, I think we're coming up about at the end of our class. So um, this has been so awesome. Um, I love how you talk about the industry, how it really is. And like listening to the conversation, like this is how it really is out there. So I love that you can share this perspective with the class. I think it's super valuable. Um, Chase, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, nothing for me. Just thanks again for taking the time. You're, I know your time is valuable. So we always appreciate your involvement in our program. No, we're really excited that Utah State um, put this program together. I mean, I graduated from Utah State in nothing to do with um, design. And, uh, you know, I, I think Utah State is just such an amazing um, institution. You know, having gone to the University of Utah and Utah State, they're not even comparable. <laughs> so I, I think it's really exciting that you guys have built this program and we're going to continue to look at, you know, look for uh, new hires out of, out of Utah State because I think you're doing a great job of educating people like Adam and Shelby are doing great. And, uh, you know, we're really happy to have them on our team. Well, thanks for providing the opportunities. So, okay. Well, I'm sure we'll be in touch more in the future. Again, thanks, Doug, for taking the time. And, and absolutely. If students have questions, thanks for providing your email. So, yeah, anytime, just shoot me it. It may take me, you know, until 10 or 11 at night to get back to you, but I will get back to you. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks, Doug. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor industry leaders and enthusiasts, subscribe and listen wherever podcasts are found or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast.